2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 56 of Take a Bow. I'm your host, Eli Tokash, and we are going to be continuing our Pride Month celebration this week with another great episode. Laura Hayward joins us, who is a Broadway expert, and she's quite famous in the world of Broadway media and social media and everything like that. So we have another, uh, going back to Bill Berloni's episode, we have another um, kind of person who's created their new field uh, in the industry in order to make a career and a life out of it. And uh, Laura's story is very cool. Um, She's combined her loves of, you know, being social on social media and everything like that, as well as Broadway and her experience in radio shows and everything like that. She's just has that great personality and she's been able to uh, brilliantly combine the two um, sources of entertainment uh, into one and make a career out of it. So I'm very excited for you all to hear her story, hear what she's done and maybe have some inspiration as well. She also talks about being a queer business owner and uh, what that means to her And she talks about so many great things, so this is a great episode, so stay tuned. But before we turn it over to the episode, let's talk about what's going on in Broadway, because there's a lot to talk about, okay? Let's talk about what shows are going to be coming back first. Uh, To Kill a Mockingbird uh, announced that they will be opening October 5th, and Jeff Daniels and Celia Keenan-Boulder are confirmed to be coming back, and it's going to be returning to the Schubert Theater on, like I said, August on, like I said, October 5th, so very exciting news coming there, because that is a show that I adore, I've seen it twice, and I've loved every single moment of it, and I'm not one who, like, loves plays, but To Kill a Mockingbird is definitely one of my favorites, and I have, um, I don't know, I'm going off the rails here for a second, but It's interesting, I've been doing like an assignment in school, and To Kill a Mockingbird is actually a banned book for schools, because of their um, use of language, their adult uh, storyline, and because of their adult themes that are kind of not, parents are worried that it's not as child-friendly as it may uh, be sought out to be, or was originally sought out to be. but I, I think it's a very important story to tell. And I think it's a very uh, important story to teach in classes as far as preparing younger ones for the their life and their future. And uh, maybe not like at a, such an early age, but when it comes to like seventh grade through high school like I definitely think it's a book that should be taught in English classes but parents were worried that um they kind of challenged the book and now it's a banned book for school so it's very interesting um but I am glad that it is coming back to Broadway throughout that whole process and uh and they're making sure that this story is continued to be told. So I'm very excited uh, for this show to come back. I will definitely be seeing this again. Love it. Celia Keenan-Bolger will be revising her Tony Award winning performance. Um, And another show that will be coming back off Broadway is going to be The Blue Man Group, and they're going to be returning on September 3rd. And so Stowe's continue to be uh, announcing their reopening to uh live performances and and this is breaking news. I literally just got this alert as I was filming this. Freestyle Love Supreme is going to be returning to Broadway on October 7th. And that was a show that didn't even like close like while the Broadway like it was already it already ended when Broadway shut down. It's going to be returning October 7th and it's going to be at the Booth Theater again and it's going to be for a limited run. until january 2nd so wow i mean shows just continue to announce their opening like i said uh lots of lots of exciting um lots of exciting storylines and oh my god Book of Mormon will also be resuming Broadway performances, and that's going to be starting on November 5th. Wow, what a time to be recording right now. So a lot of very exciting stuff there. Um, And now let's talk about some other things going on. Christy Altimore is leading this developmental reading of a new musical called Alice in Neverland, not Wonderland. And it's actually a sequel to uh, one of the most like beloved stories of all time, which is Alice in Wonderland. Um, and she's going to be joined by Broadway veterans Heath Sounders and Tony nominee Will Swenson and many other Broadway stars, including people from Wicked, Mean Girls, Miss Saigon, Haiti Sound, all of the things. Uh, they're they're starting readings and everything again, very exciting times. Um, Christy Altimore, love her, Anastasia, we all know that. So uh that's exciting and another new uh piece of work that's going to be coming out soon uh is actually going to be a Beauty and the Beast live action um TV series uh on Disney Plus and in that is going to be Luke Evans and of course Josh Gad uh King um and he's they're both going to be reprising their roles as they did in uh the Beauty and the Beast like live action whole movie um, but this is going to be a musical prequel series. The score, of course, is going to be written by Alan Menken, and Brianna Middleton will also be starring in the eight-episode Disney Plus limited series. So that's very exciting stuff. And also, shout out to Lizel Tommy, who will be directing the pilot episode. She she was the director of Eclipse. She's doing a ton of things. She's going to—I don't know if she still is—but she was directing um, the Outsiders Out of Town and all of those fun things that are coming about so she's becoming more and more uh we're seeing more and more of her name out there in both the tv movie and theater world um so i'm very excited for her um lots of fun fun things happening and um there's apparently a theater hall of fame i had never known this but i get all of this information from broadway world and broadway.com and all these things um, i get all these alerts to make sure i'm allowed to announce it when it's uh, announced the Theater Hall of Fame will be inducting their next six uh, artists at the November 15th ceremony. And uh, the this year's inductees include Bob Crowley, Gerald Friedman, Alan Menken, Lynn Nottage. She's so good. She's a playwright. Oh, my God. Love her. Anna Devere Smith and Leslie Ugams. So a lot of people to be celebrating here. Uh, these six people, you have to be, like, eligible to... Be inducted into the Theater Hall of Fame with like 25 years of musical theater, like contributions and, uh, you know, changing theater the way that we all see it and the way that it's been for the past 25 years and whatnot. So these six people are very important to what Broadway is today um, as they've all continued to shape their stories and the writing styles and everything like that let's talk about the moment that we've all been waiting for, okay? Let's talk about In the Heights because I have to talk about it with someone. I don't know if everyone's seen it yet, so I'm not gonna give, like, too much away, although everyone probably knows the story of it just because it was a musical and everything. Anyways, I won't try to, like, speak too much on it, Um, but if you haven't seen it yet, go watch it. It's incredible um Benny who was played by Corey Hawkins incredible incredible I lost my mind I didn't really like know much about him like I knew that he was like a big movie like he was big in the like film and tv world but I didn't know like he had the voice that he had he was incredible he like I was blown away by his performance. Um, He was definitely underrated, like coming into all of this as far as like, oh, it's in the heights, But like, how is he going to be in a musical? Like, I don't know. There was just stuff about it. And I loved his performance. And uh, everyone was amazing. Anthony Ramos, Lin-Manuel Miranda, of course. Uh, Melissa Barrera, who played Vanessa, was amazing. Leslie Grace, who played Nina, was amazing uh everyone's performances were incredible gregory diaz shout out to him again um who i got the chance to interview uh daphne rubin vega and uh everyone who kind of revised their uh, revisited this project uh in this this new film uh everyone was just amazing and i loved seeing when as kind of like the neighborhood like icy slash ice cream like kind of guy and this rivalry that he had with christopher jackson it was just really really brilliant um i loved so much of in the heights and they're getting a bit of backlash as far as the the inclusivity with the afro latin x community and the director made like comments about it he was like this is why we need more art for our community because now it's all falling on one movie and everything like that and lin-manuel was like oh my he released a statement saying like Oh my gosh, like, I'm so sorry. Like I wrote in the Heights because there was nothing that I felt that I could relate to. And now I feel like, and now I'm hearing feedback that, you know, I, there's still people that, um, weren't heard during this production. And, um, he, he was addressing that and saying that he looks to continue to use this as a learning experience and will continue to be more mindful as far as that, uh, continues moving forward. So that is happening right now. And it's unfortunate with a show such as In the Heights, who is trying to include so many different cultures that aren't really talked about. Um, and it's just, it's a beautiful story and everything like that. And it's unfortunate that, you know, it's getting feedback that it's getting, um, but it's completely understandable. So that's what's going on within the Heights. And before I turn it over to the interview, I want to talk about um, equity signed off on health and safety measures as far as uh, the touring productions go. And uh, I'm interested in seeing how this, if this is gonna be how Broadway is or um, how it's going to improve when Broadway reopens, Uh, because there's still a lot going on. As some of us may know, New York is fully open. So like they're easing up on the COVID-19 protocols and doing all the things, but on tour, the equity team has come together And said that they want to have masks on at all time, maintain social distancing uh, until, you know, you're on a stage and you're performing and they won't have masks and everything on that, like, and everything like that on the stage. But as soon as they come off, they're required to have their mask, they're required to do social distancing, they're required to do all the things they are required to get vaccinated as well as uh, they're going to be COVID testing weekly uh for at at the theaters and everything like that and as far as like the backstage people like they're going to be required to wear masks face shield and gloves when at like all times when uh interacting with cast members uh and changing gloves and all of this like they're being very cautious which is great um but i wonder if this is because they're going to be traveling so much and because they don't want to they don't want to take the risk. And I wonder if Broadway, who's going to be stationed in New York the entire time with the, and the fact that New York is fully open, I wonder how it's going to uh, reflect on the decisions uh, that Broadway makes and, and its decision to reopen with all of this going on. Um, It's going to be very interesting. I can't imagine it's going to be too different from a tour because it is equity. It's all the same union. They're going to all want, the same thing. Um, So very interesting stuff going on in the industry as far as reopening and how it's going to go. It does seem like audiences will be able to be full capacity. Um, I don't know as far as I feel like it's going to be more of a theater. Um, It's going to depend on theaters and their private organizations as, as if they're going to be wanting to require Uh, face mask and gloves, or whatever it may be. Um, and uh, as far as tours, the interactions with audience members will be prohibited. So no stage door experiences, no none of that. Like they will not, they will block it all off. They'll have private entrances. They'll have all these things. So they're being very strict about it. So I wonder. I I assume when Broadway reopens that it is going to be like that, and I would assume that it won't be like that when the new year hits. So I feel like we're just going to have to deal with it until the new year. And then I think come January or maybe they'll just wait for next, uh, next summer, because in the heat, I hear it's supposed to be better for the, the virus and everything like that, as far as less contagious and everything like that. So maybe they'll wait, but I would assume next January, at the start of the new year, they would allow stage door experiences on Broadway uh, for sure. So We'll see about all of this. This is crazy times, but let's turn it over to our wonderful, wonderful interview today with Laura Hayward. Laura Hayward, curtain up. I am so excited to introduce this week's guest. She has a story unlike any of our previous guests on the show and is more well-known for her involvement in the Broadway media. So she's a host, an interview, and a Broadway expert. So get ready to hear two people geek out about Broadway, literally. Um, Dialing in all the way from California, welcome to Take a Bow, Laura Hayward. Oh my goodness, you have literally done so many things like you've you've I mean you've literally done commercials you've done hosting you've done like you've done everything you're a jack of all trades right or, or queen of all trade really um so you started out right you started out appearing in national commercials with like Nintendo and Apple and Dove and like all of these amazing things so when did you kind of Decide that you were going to get out of that kind of business and pivot your career more towards like media.
1: Um, I thought I was going to be an actor from the time I was in like elementary school, um, all the way through college. I went to college on an acting scholarship. Um, most of my commercial work was uh, when I was in high school, and um, then the the Big Dove campaign was right after college, but. Um, I I started doing radio when I was a student in college. It was a semester I didn't get cast in the play and I knew I could like sign up for a radio show. So I started doing that. Um, I actually got a lot of feedback when I was auditioning. Um, You know, when I was about 14, I was this cute girl next door. But then as I became an older teenager and into my 20s, um, the brands that were hiring actors of my age, we're looking for sort of more exotic looks, um, tall, thin, sort of fashion model types, where mm. I am shorter and curvy and uh, more girl next door. So I just wasn't getting a lot of work, but the feedback I got from casting directors was great voice, great personality, not the look we're looking for right now. And instead of thinking, oh no, I have to you know go on a diet or change my look i said great voice great personality maybe radio would be fun and of course it's that's an oversimplification but i realized that i could lean yeah. into the positive feedback instead of getting caught up in the negative feedback and um and media came pretty naturally to me
2: um for the, for those reasons i think Wow, that's insane. And literally, it, it totally worked out for you. Like, there's, it's interesting how the w- world takes us in the directions that we're supposed to be in because you've done a tons of experience in radio work. I mean, you were doing sports talk shows and you're a producer and a co host for Sirius XM. I mean, talk about like your experience doing radio shows and like what kind of goes into that and what that whole world is because it's very different.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it- I've done a lot of different things in radio. My first job was answering phones for a morning show. uh, And three weeks after uh, the show debuted, the woman that they had hired to do news and sports was just not proving to not be a good fit. And so even though I was just out of school... The producer and the host said, "We're gonna find somebody. We're gonna do a nationwide search for a good fit, but but while we do the search, can you just take over? Can you just try it?" And so I tried it, and they did find someone with a lot more experience than me. but in the meantime, I had established myself as a you know sort of a a smart and sassy sidekick. So they kept me as a member of the on-air team even after they brought in the new uh, sports and news person and then or traffic and news, I guess it was. Um, and that job was four hours a day. I was supposed to be there from his morning show. So I was there from six to 10 answering phones. I think I was getting paid $8 an hour, but I never went home at 10 o'clock. I treated it like graduate school. I, I said, I have this key card. I have access to this radio station in the fourth biggest market in the country, which was San Francisco. And I just kept. I went around the building and I said, "Can I just sit and watch you work for the day?" And I learned every single facet of the industry I could learn, um, because I knew that I would never have that chance again. So I took this four-hour a day job and turned it into a full-time educational experience. Um, and and then about an hour, uh, an hour, about a year after I did that, I um, I found a job listing online. Um, for an overnight d j on a hip hop radio station, about a three hour drive from San Francisco in a much smaller market, and I applied for it, and I got it, so I was driving back and forth doing hip hop overnight, doing sports talk in the morning and um and then I got a job I got a job at another San Francisco radio station, a sister station pre-taping weekend broadcasts for a classic rock station for a while I was doing all of those um and each one was different i had a different like delivery vo- vocal delivery on each one um and then and then uh, a few a couple years after that uh the the station that had hired me on weekends which was classic rock that rocks they <laughs> hired me full time to so these are all part time jobs but the classic rock station hired me to Produce their morning show and host their midday show. So I had a seven-hour on-air shift plus all the stuff that came later. It was, and that was all before I turned twenty-five. Um, so I, I sometimes say I got ten years of experience in three and a half years of working because I was doing so many simultaneous jobs, and uh, and it paid off because I've had so many opportunities
2: as a result. That's insane. Wait, and and you started doing like radio in in high school or like that is that what you were saying like you or, or was that in college
1: in college my my I went to a very small liberal arts school uh, outside of Seattle and the college radio station was uh not anything anybody got academic credit for it was something that anybody who wanted to could sign up for a 1 hour show sometime during the week and they gave my very first radio show was all college a cappella groups I called it a cappella Now with Laura Haywood. Yes. And they liked, this was in the early 2000s. Um, grunge music was still kind of in fashion. Um, Seattle is a big rock scene. And so almost everybody played rock music on the college station, but I wanted to play acapella. And so they kind of punished me for that by giving me the 7 a.m. slot on Sunday mornings. Um, but I think they hoped that I'd say, never mind, I don't want to do it. But I was getting up at, you know, 630 to go to the college station, do my acapella show. But here's the thing. And Eli, I feel like this is really going to distinguish the age difference between you and me, because not only was this a time when we had to put the, you know, cue up the record. Well, I mean, it, they were CDs, but we had to press play on every single song. There was no like automated playlist. Stop. But also when no one was there, because there were no, sh- there were no shows between 4am and 7am and the station would just go off the air. It would be static from 4am to 7am until someone came in and like flipped the switch to turn it from static to broadcast. So I was one of the few people with a key to the radio station who could flip the switch from off air to on air. And instead of just going in at seven, I started going in at four
2: because there was nobody
1: else on the air. And I would go basically, basically anytime somebody did, a lot of people didn't show up for their shifts because there was no pay. There was no credit. It was all just, if you feel like it. So there was no, there was no, if somebody had like had a hangover or had to study for a test or whatever, they would just be like, I don't feel like doing my show this week. So rather than do, rather than studying in the library or in my dorm room, I would study at the radio station. And if anybody didn't show up for their show, I would go in and I'd play, I would play music from whatever format their show was. So it was playing a lot of rock music on the weekends. There were a lot of hip hop shows. Um, I just sort of, I thought of it kind of like a playground. I didn't think, all right, I'm teaching myself to be a radio host. I'm going to be a professional. I'm going to get my right. 10,000 hours of practice in. I didn't think about it like that. I just was like, it was kind of like, you know, showing up at Disneyland and, and nobody else is there that day. So you can do whatever you want. And I, I just played and I taught myself how to do radio in this little podunk college station that probably zero people were listening to. It was the perfect, it's kind of like, you know, if you want to be a musician and you go and play in coffee shops where nobody is there, but you practice and you practice and you practice. So when you're ready when you show up at a club or, you know, coffee house where lots of people are there, you're ready and you don't freeze. So I got a lot of experience just by taking my one, my one hour of, of assigned radio station time. And by the time I that was the beginning of my sophomore year, by the time I graduated as a senior, I was doing like 20 hours a week on the college radio station. Because so many people had dropped out, and I was always
2: ready to pick up the slack. Oh my god, that's that's incredible.
1: So I got a degree in theater, but I but I'd already moved on to radio. Yeah.
2: Did you like? Did you ever think like while you were doing it? Like I know you thought of it like a playground and everything, but it was it was it like you could potentially do this like in your as your future?
1: Um, I sort of. My I had been my first two summers of college. Summer after freshman year and sophomore year, I was a camp counselor at a a, a family camp that it's sort of like. Have you seen the movie Dirty
2: Dancing? No, I oh, haven't. It's Eli, so bad. No. I know.
1: Well, it's. I it's, haven't. Um,
2: it's so bad. I know. I'm ashamed.
1: Well, I'm assigning that to you. That's your homework. Um, But essentially, it's like a summer camp that the one where I worked was like a summer camp where families would go together and stay in cabins. And then the like, I don't know, this isn't even relevant. You can edit it out if you want. But I love I was a camp counselor for two summers. And then after my uh, after two years, my parents were like, you're you need to get internships. It's time for you to have a real job. No more camp counselor stuff. Um, Mm. Like get an internship that'll help you get a job once you, you know, finish college. And I was like, what in the world am I qualified to do that would still be fun? And I was like, oh, well, maybe I can get around this boring internship thing by applying for an internship at a radio station. I've been doing all this radio stuff. Maybe I can... You know, manage to still enjoy my summer while still having an internship if I do it at a radio station. I didn't think I want to work in radio. I thought I don't really want to work. Radio seems like a fun excuse to like call it work, but I would not really be work. So I thought I was gaming the system, but really I was preparing myself for a career in media, you know? So I got two two simultaneous internships um, at radio stations in, in San Francisco. One was as part of a live morning show and one was on a promotions team where we'd go out to like county fairs and give out t-shirts and sign people up for the mailing list and stuff like that. Um, so I spent all summer in professional radio stations and the contacts that I made that summer were among the ones that hired me when I graduated from school. So it did exactly what an internship is supposed to do. Meanwhile, I wasn't thinking, okay, I got to get work experience. I was like, how can I manage to enjoy myself while still convincing my parents I'm working? (laughs) Incredible.
2: That's insane though. But wait, so how does this work that you're in California and everything, right? But then you're in California and then you have like this obsession or not like obsession but like you get into broadway like how did where did that come about okay so like how did you get into broadway so
1: there's several elements to this story i will say um without going into too much detail uh my i was raised in a theater loving family um my grandmother was a professional singer um not Uh like a pop singer but she would perform at at, she was like available for, for hire at weddings and funerals and other events. And she sang at Yosemite national park every summer. Um, oh and then my dad, dad is a, not a professional singer, but a, but a, a really incredible singer. Um, and, uh, So I grew up like hearing them saying my my grandma did a lot of community theater. Like I saw her um, in the lead of a community theater production of South Pacific, Um, and you know she played all the kind of Kelly O'Hara roles. (laughs) She uh, I think she was she also did um, The King and I and uh, yes as she should. And then I we also had I I grew up in Oakland California, which is where I am now. I live in New York now, but I'm visiting my family. Um, I grew up in Oakland California, and there is this outdoor musical theater that puts on three shows every summer. And I, my parents have had season tickets to that theater, which is called Woodminster since I was like eight months old. Well, I was born in April. So whenever, I guess I was like May, June, July, I I guess, I guess it was like since I was three months old and because it's out and a big outdoor theater, they would just stand in the back with little infant Laura in their arms. So I literally grew, I was literally going to musicals before I was going to, you know, before I was, before I could speak, before I could walk. And so I, I, I got an education in theater that way. I did school plays. Um, I got, I went to college on an acting scholarship, but I didn't think I would, once I found radio, I thought I'd do radio for the rest of my life. I, I still you know, I was, uh, I was in college, the rent came out the year I graduated from high school. So of course that was a phenomenon in, in a way nothing else had, had been, but beyond that, I wasn't really that aware of what was going on on Broadway. This is early internet, you know, like everything's so different right now. Um, But what, what, so that, that's sort of my, the foundation
0: The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: The moment everything changed was uh, I got recruited to work at Sirius. Well, it became Sirius XM, but it was called Sirius Satellite Radio when it first launched. And there was a brand new channel that was launching when it was a new platform that was based on a magazine called Maxim. Maxim Magazine still exists. It is known for having girls in bikinis on the cover. Oh. Um, <laughs> uh, back in 2004, 2005, it was a, considered like a major cultural journalistic force. It did still have girls in bikinis on the cover, but it also had really incredible journalism and it was focused towards men mostly it had articles about things like shark attacks and fast cars and like comedy clubs and had interviews with girls in bikinis um it it was it's uh, it feels like a very different era uh but it but it was it was a major cultural force and so there was an entire radio station that was designed to be like with that brand in mind And um, I was hired to be one of a producer slash co-host on the midday show. So uh, a guy hosted the show and I was his co-host and I also booked all the guests for it. And I arranged like the schedule and they, they wanted me to do it because I could sort of simultaneously be the cute girl next door, throwback to my commercial days as a teenager and also, um, kind of one of the guys. Yes. I've been working on this sports talk radio station. I could break down the batting lineup, I could talk about football, I could chug a beer, and I was ready to sort of hang with the guys in the quote unquote locker room, you know, like I wasn't going to this is it's again so outdated and problematic, but they would have conversations It's locker like, room talk. Well, yeah. locker room talk is now a very Loaded phrase like after the man who shall not be named used it as an right. excuse for uh, actual. I mean, look, look, let's not get into politics, but um but yeah, locker room talk used to have a non political connotation that was you know it would be kind of like oh my you know my girlfriend wants me to c- cuddle like how do you how do you get a, you know how do you avoid cuddling you know without pissing off your girlfriend and. I, would, I wouldn't be like, rude, you guys. I'd be like, what if you did this? You know, I kind of was able to be. Anyway, that's not, not the proudest content I've ever created. But again, I sound like such an old person when I say this. <laughs> it was a different era. Um, no excuses. Uh, I understand a lot more now. I've grown and learned, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, I moved to New York. I was recruited to move to New York to work on that. I w- when I got there, I was working, it was, it was a startup. Sirius was a startup. It was a big, well-funded startup, but it was brand new. We were all, they basically had pulled the version of me from every city in the country. They were like, where are the young, super driven, experienced people who will still work for very low wages and, um, but create something great the way that a lot of tech startups were, were doing. And so I was working 70 to 80 hours a week. All I did was make radio and immerse myself in this, what I now call dude culture. Every, all of my, because it was the only thing I had time to do, uh, all of my friends were from this same culture. And I also am this musical theater loving former actor who is in the city where theater is made, but I didn't really have time to go to a lot of shows nor did I have time to like make friends with other people who we're into it. Um, there isn't a lot, of there's some, but there's not a lot of crossover between musical theater and jacks. We all know some, you know, we all know some. Sure. But uh, they're, you know, th- those are pretty, pretty disparate communities. Um, and the moment, so I started going, uh, uh, okay, so I was invited by someone I barely knew who had a free extra ticket to what he told me was the revival of a German play from the 1800s on Broadway. And I was like, that sounds terrible. But the theater's a block away from my house and it's free and I might as well, it's a Broadway show, I might as well go. Well, this, this quote unquote revival of a German play from the 1800s, was actually Spring Awakening, <laughs> which is, as you probably know, oh, not a revival, my God. but a reworking and a like modern rock musical that breaks <laughs> all the rules and did everything new. And but it's based on a German play from the eighteen hundreds. But it was the opposite of what I thought it would be. It rocked my world to the core. I ended up seeing that production at least 18 times. I think I lost count. I sat on stage. I joined the fan club. I like stage doored. Yes. I, I was spring awakening. OG super fan. And that performance that I went to was during previews. And like I said, I lived a block away from the theater. So on my way home from work every day, I'd stop in the box office and I'd be like, got any tickets for tonight? And because I had this full-time job with great benefits, I could actually afford to go to the theater. And they were also selling tickets for $25 to sit on the stage Mm -hmm. with the cast. So it wasn't, it it was a perfect confluence of my interests, where I lived, how much money I had. Um, And that's when I really started to understand fandom for the first time. When Rent came out, I wasn't in New York. I didn't take part in the, like the lotteries, the camping out, mm-hmm. the front row seats. I listened to the album a lot, but I wasn't—I wasn't a Rent head in the way that people who grew up in New York were able to be. Um, Spring Awakening was the show that. Even though I was, I think I was thirty by then. I just I started to make friends with other people who were camping out. Like we would go and wait in line at four in the morning because an, a new understudy was going on. I remember I remember waking up in the middle of the night and lining up to see Matt Doyle play Melchior because he was the first the first person other than Jonathan Groff to play the role. And of course now I'm friends with Matt Doyle.
2: Um, incredible. I'm,
1: I mean I'm friends with a whole bunch of the people from the cast. I'm friends with Lily Cooper. I'm friends with Remy Zakin. And what's really funny is that they were all kids during that show, and I was a grown up. And I'm like, now they're all grown ups, and I'm still the same age. Anyway, um, that's how you and I are going to be. I'm, I'm like, I'm like, oh little little baby Eli from no! <laughs> Finding Neverland, and now you're like a man.
2: Oh my god, stop! <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. It's weird.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so that was in 2006. Um, I start I started learning about things like lotteries, rush tickets. Um, people would say, I remember people saying, okay, well, the, the Tony is either going to go to spring awakening or gray gardens. And I went, oh, well, I better go see gray gardens then. And so I did that. And then I was like, oh my gosh, there's all these shows. And I, so I started going, I started thinking, what else do I need to see? And then the next show I fell in love with was, um, the 2007 revival of company with Raul Esparza nice. and they too had rush tickets and it too was within a couple blocks of my house kitchen apartment. So I started going to see that one all the time. And, you know, and I would, I remember one time seeing Raul Esparza at Jamba. Yeah, no way. Um, you know, and I was like, there's this guy who uh, like, and he's just a normal person. I started, the more shows I saw, the more I realized that I was surrounded by these normal people who are also these stars I was seeing on stage and I have a really good memory for faces. So I'd recognize the chorus people too. And I'd be like, you know, there's three people I saw in wicked and they're all sitting together at Starbucks and nobody notices. I'd be looking around going like, does anybody else see this? Nobody else cared. And then I'd go to work and I'd be like, I saw three, you know, Ozzy at Starbucks. (laughs) And they'd be like, I don't know what that is. Like I guess I've heard of Wicked, but whatever. You know, like no, n- none of my colleagues right. cared, and none of the people around. I didn't know anybody else who cared, like who was into it. Then, I read this book, and the book was called Waiter Rant. It was a, and it was based on an anonymous blog by a, um, a guy in the restaurant industry who waited tables somewhere in New York City, but he never said where. And he started the blog, from what I understand, as a way to, um, like, mm. tell restaurant customers what the staff really thinks about things like when you don't tip well or how to send a, a meal back. But oh. it, it ended up being a storytelling mechanism that read like a soap opera. It was kind of like, uh, you know, which bartender was having an affair with which hostess. And yeah. um, and I didn't discover it till it was a book when it was, it was no longer anonymous, but I, I remember reading the book and going, this is exactly the kind of thing that should exist for Broadway. Somebody should be like, there's three wicked cast members having coffee at Starbucks or, you know, which shows are like where the best seats are to see which show or, or information about rush and that kind of stuff. And I had just heard of this new platform that had just started to be on anybody's radar called Twitter. One day after work, I had bought a ticket to see Angela Lansbury in (laughs) uh, Blythe Spirits. And I, on a whim, created a Twitter account. I called it Broadway Girl. I wrote, Broadway Girl NYC, I wrote a tweet that said, I'm going to see blind Spirit tonight! Exclamation point. I went to the theater. I came home, and I had ten followers. And I don't know how they found me, but I was I was like I then wrote a tweet, and this was there's no no cell phone app. You can't put pictures in a tweet. Hashtags aren't a thing yet. There's no retweet button. This was like Stone Age Twitter, (laughs) and I wrote like. Angela Lansbury was amazing. Christine Ebersole is incredible. Like, wow. um, I sat in the this and that row, whatever. It wasn't even really a review. It was just kind of like, here's what I did tonight. And by the time I woke up in the morning, I had 30 more followers. And I think that what was happening is people were signing up for this new platform and it would say, what are your interests? And people would type in Broadway and Broadway girl would come up because it had the the word in the name. And there were very, very few fan accounts on social media at that point. Social media marketing wasn't a thing. I don't even know that the term social media was used. Again, it was the dark ages. It was another era. But I I didn't know a single thing about branding. I was not like, what can I create that will allow (laughs) me to have a following that I can eventually make into a job? I just the same way that I went into the college radio station and just played, I created a, I, I created a Twitter account so I could almost like keep a journal of my own theater-going right. adventures, and it
2: turned into a big deal. That's incredible. That's literally the coolest story that I've ever heard. <laughs> and having to ta- hear you say like it was the Stone Age or whatever, like you said it was 15 years ago. Like that's crazy just to like think back of like – how much things have changed in the last, like, 15 years. It wasn't even long ago. Like, that's insane. But I love the fact that, like, you're literally, like, you could basically say that you started fan accounts. Like, and now they're, like, the whole, like, rave of social media. Like, people are, like, all over fan accounts. And so, like you said, you're now, uh, I guess you would you say you're, like, more well-known as Broadway Girl NYC than you are, Laura Hayward? I would
1: say that for a while I was, I mean, for five years from 2000 from 2009 to 20 beginning of 2015 nobody knew who Broadway girl was and that was part of the appeal was who is this person who who gets to sees everything and knows all this stuff and who manages to be positive all the time and you know never I was not doing reviews I was doing enthusiasm I was and actually what's crazy about this is I didn't realize it until after the fact but But one thing I learned from Maxim and working on Maxim Radio was how to have an aspirational personality. Maxim, like I said, is about fast cars and, you know, like, uh, and, you know, dating models and the kind of life that no actual human being lives. But the people who wrote for the magazine would, would write as if that was a possible life to live. When I started writing Broadway Girl... I was thinking about a kid in middle America who maybe would one time get to go see a touring performance, but who would think like, I don't care if I'm in the last row of the balcony to just be there. I don't care if there's an understudy on, I just want to be there. What would I be doing? If I lived in New York, I'd never complain about anything. And so without planning it, without strategizing, I was writing I was, Broadway Girl was an aspirational version of Laura Haywood, but nobody knew it was Laura Haywood. And that was one of the reasons that people became interested in it for the same reason that that book by The Waiter had people like, who is this? What restaurant is it? Have I been to that restaurant? That sounds like someone I know. And people started saying that about Broadway Girl. They'd be like, she sounds like we'd be really good friends. Maybe I am friends with her. Maybe I sat next to her at the show and people started like paying attention, trying to find clues as to what my real identity was. And I actually ended up getting invited to do a TED Talk revealing my identity as being, like, and and by then, Laura Haywood had, I, Laura Haywood, had a lot of connections and friends in the Broadway industry who didn't know. They followed Broadway Girl and they knew Laura Haywood, but they didn't know we were the same person. Oh, so wow. when I revealed to the community, hey guys, it's been me this whole time, there was it it was i mean it's not like the new york times covered it but it was pressworthy and at that point i said it's time for me to take my two separate identities and make them into one person and i had been doing radio as an interviewer and a producer and a co-host i had this on camera experience from my days doing commercials and commercial print and I had this big social media following, and what I, I at that point understood was a brand as Broadway girl, and so becoming kind of a pundit, uh, interviewer for hire, an, an expert, um, you know, somebody who can go on on TV morning shows and be like, "What should I see when I come to New York?" That kind of thing. I I had all of the skills, and three sort of separate path that I had taken that all led to this perfect little, you know, combined persona. So for a while, people called me Broadway Girl. They'd be like, this is Broadway Girl. Um, In the five years since or six years since the TED Talk, I've established myself more as Laura Haywood. Um, And I say Broadway Girl is my online alter ego. But when I go on TV to talk about what Broadway shows you should see, laura haywood is my name broadway girl is broadway girl M I C is my social media handle but i prefer to be known as by my real name now but it's still my social media handle on every platform so
2: oh my gosh that's it what it like literally like what a story like <laughs> it seems like you're always like just trying new things and playing around and seeing what sticks but also like putting everything into that, you know, like, it seems like you are having fun and you're doing all these things, but you're also giving it your everything, like in everything that you do, your radio, your social media, all of it. So that's like a huge lesson of today. But I do want to ask, like, how did you know that like the time is right to like, finally like reveal who you were? So much of it is gut. I mean, I, a,
1: a few things happened. One, um, I had been at Sirius, which was then Sirius XM by then, um, for 10 years, and I was ready for a change. I had started, I did have a bunch of people who knew me well enough who did know my secret identity, and a lot of them were theater people, and, they, and I had a couple of friends who were producers doing Broadway shows or I'm, I'm doing off-Broadway shows who said like, we want to hire you to help us do our social media because you clearly know how to do it. And at the time it was really just Twitter. Um, and I so I said like, this is what I want to do with my life and people want to pay me to do it. And it's not actually, Twitter is not actually that different from radio, especially I like to say that as a co-host, my job was to come up with, funny one-liners that were articulate, um, concise, and funny. And that's exactly what Twitter is. It's finding one sentence that is articulate, concise, and funny, and knowing when to literally or proverbially turn on the mic and then turn it right back off. So I I sometimes say that by the time Twitter was invented, uh, it was like I had been practicing for a decade for a sport that hadn't been created yet. I was ahead of the game because I already knew how to craft that one-liner that was so great for Twitter. Um, and when people started, people who, who knew that I was Broadway girl and that I was responsible for this account that had zoomed to, you know, tens of thousands of followers, um, I wanted to be able to accept the jobs and I wanted to be able to, uh, to put myself out there for jobs like that but if Laura Haywood without the Broadway girl credit on my resume if i was like hey i want to be your social media director people would be like what do you know about that and i'd have to be like uh right at this what from what people know in this moment Laura Haywood's never done social media so i had to be able to be like my first client was Broadway girl um and and also i had kind of a uh, I had made an agreement with my my boss. I when when my Broadway girl uh, persona started to take off, um, Broadway World had me asked me to write a column for them on a weekly basis. And my my um, agreement when I started at Sirius was that I couldn't do other media work without getting permission. Um, you know, it was like a non a non compete kind of thing. So when Broadway World offered me a weekly column in the very early days, like less than a year after I started. Uh, the Twitter account, I went to human resources and I said, I have an opportunity to write about Broadway. My name won't be on it. I won't be talking about anything related to Sirius. It has no crossover with the content I create for Sirius. So I'm just like coming to you to get permission to do that. And they were like, yeah, that's fine. Um, So, so my, like the people at Sirius knew, um, uh, but, but my agreement with my boss was that it didn't make sense to confuse what I was doing for Sirius versus what I was doing for the Broadway stuff. So I just, I don't know whether I was required to stay anonymous while I was there, but Sirius has a, you know, a very successful Broadway music channel that I wasn't involved with. And I didn't want to confuse the relationship that the Sirius as an, as I mean, I, I was a talent booker like I booked guests to be on that channel, but that was not a Broadway girl gig. That was a Laura Haywood gig. And I didn't want to muddy those waters. So I wasn't going to reveal my identity until after I had left Sirius. And so that was a big part of the timing as well.
2: Wow. And now to to boot um, the fact that you just literally don't s- stop. <laughs> You're always <laughs> doing stuff. Um, you You've created... Like your own little business, right? Mm -hmm. And it's called Applause Shop. So, talk to us about that for a second and what you're doing, because like you're not only are you like, do you have like this shop and everything, but it's all about like giving back and recycling and all these things. I'll let you talk about it, but I I just love that because especially for the list, the people who listen to this, it's like Mm -hmm. perfect for them. So, talk to us about that.
1: I'm so thrilled that you asked me about it. This is the thing that I am like you said I get you didn't say it exactly this way but I will I get obsessed about stuff yes. I don't do anything small I when I am having fun with something I go all in there's no dipping right. <laughs> a toe into the water for me I dive into the deep end um and uh and during during the pandemic uh, I didn't know how I was going to make ends meet. For the last two years, I was hired to work full time for six weeks on the Tony Awards. This is one of my, you know, the feathers in my cap as a Broadway expert is that I was the person who, I was a person who made sure that the names and the faces on the television broadcast matched. When they, they would, a quarter of a second before broadcast, they would show, you know, Debbie Dick, then they'd go, and the, you know, person would type in David Diggs and they'd be like, is that actually David Diggs? And I'd be like, that's him, go. And then the director would be like, okay, go live. Um this David Diggs was not actually one of the people that I had to, had to he's just, that's just an example. But so th- my expertise was crucial. You can't get that wrong. You know what I mean? Um but I made a I made a big portion of my annual income working for the Tonys. But when the pandemic came, no Tony Awards, which means no Job for Laura, which means, and also, you know, I was I was making everything I did was freelance. So I I was hosting talkbacks on Broadway stages. I was like one of the I was the only non cast member who uh, ever hosted cast album karaoke on stage at Waitress. Um, I was getting hired by outlets like CBS and Build Series NYC to host live in person interviews. All this stuff was gone, so I didn't know how I was going to make a living, Um, but. I had an apartment full, probably too full, of Broadway merchandise. A lot of it was stuff I had bought. I'm also an active thrift store shopper, and I cannot walk past anything with a Broadway logo without buying it when I go to a thrift store. Um, I had had lots of friends who said, "I'm going to throw in all this playbills I've collected over the years. Do you want them?" And I had, I always said yes. Yeah. And often I would do prize packs through Twitter. You know, I'd be like, "You tell me your favorite Broadway memory, and I'll randomly choose someone to get this." prize pack or whatever. So I thought, I I always just gathered stuff. I, I, you might say I hoarded it. Um, Luckily, I discovered during the pandemic that the only thing I like better than collecting Broadway merchandise is getting rid of Broadway merchandise and making sure it goes to homes of people who really love it. So I started just as a a utilitarian way to make ends meet. I started um, putting stuff on eBay. I started putting Playbills and t-shirts and opening night gifts and, um, you know, like weird props that I had collected over the years um, and selling them on eBay. And and um, people were really excited to have them. What I did that was different than most people who sell their crop, quote, of my language, on eBay is that from the very beginning, I made sure that a big portion of every sale went to charity. Um, I have always done, I mean, I've had an eBay account since, before you were born literally <laughs> um like since 1998 um and uh and and ever since uh ever since ebay created an opportunity like there's a there's a charity sort of uh I don't, I don't know it's not called an app but it's like a plug-in for ebay where you can just say here's the here's my favorite charity give them this percentage of the money so i don't mm-hmm. even have to touch the money. eBay just gives it to them before I get my payout. And so, um, I start, I, I assigned every single auction that I, that I listed to give money to Broadway cares, to the actors fund, to the NAACP, to Planned Parenthood, um, any number of charities. Uh, and, and I was really excited because without Without an income, I didn't know how I could support these organizations that needed help. But I knew that if I had money coming in, I wanted to make sure that some of it was going to these causes that are tied to the livelihood that I have um, and the passions that I have. What I didn't expect was that as I promoted this on social media that I was doing this, which one, I just wanted people to know they could get this stuff. And two, I wanted to encourage other people to do the same what I didn't expect was that people started contacting me saying, I have boxes and boxes of playbills too, and I don't have the bandwidth to actually list them on eBay, but I love that you're giving a portion to uh to all these great causes. And I want to help you, Laura, survive. Can I send them to you? And then you can sell them and give a portion to these charities. So I started getting boxes and boxes and boxes of other people's treasures. That in a lot of cases had been sitting in boxes on the you know top right. shelf of their closet, and they wanted to help me, and they wanted to help um, these these charitable organizations. And so, I, I will you know long story short, I I realized the number of hours I was putting into it had essentially made it a full time job for me, and I had. Um, I have a really good friend who happens to be a big time Broadway producer. Her name is Susan Vargo. She was the one who ushered SpongeBob from a cartoon to an idea to a Broadway juggernaut. Oh my God. Um, she was the executive producer of SpongeBob on Broadway and uh, has a long history what? in in the industry. And we actually met through my fandom. Um, oh my God. A friend, a friend who worked on SpongeBob, which I was obsessed with, invited me to the Tony party this Spongebob Tony party. And I went up to Susan and I was like, you don't know me, but I think you're amazing. Um, and I know that it can be really annoying when strangers say, uh, can I like take you to breakfast and pick your brain? So I'm not going to say that. I'm just going to say that I think you're amazing. And like six months later, she, this is a total sidebar, but six months later, she reached out and was like, I'm in New York this week. Are you free on Wednesday morning at seven for breakfast? And I was like, yes. Oh, and I met God. her at a you know Times Square diner. And we made small talk. And I was like, can I ask you what are like what this is about? And she was like, Oh yeah, you said you weren't gonna ask me to breakfast to pick my brain. So I thought I'd ask you to breakfast so you can pick my brain.
2: Oh wow. Um
1: always say yes to people. Yes. <laughs> you know I mean? Um and so we stayed friends for a long time and she and so she saw what I was doing, and she's a really, really big environmentalist. She was, she, she is so passionate about keeping stuff out of landfills. And one of the first things that I started selling on eBay was all of the extra plastic cups I'd picked up off the floor at Broadway shows, the sippy cups with show logos that have, um, that, you know, you get free if you buy a soda or a cocktail at the theater. And they're so cool. They're like, they're the perfect souvenir, but a lot of people, let's face it, someone who spends two hundred dollars on a theater ticket and forty dollars on a glass of wine doesn't need a plastic cup, and they're not as they're they're just as likely to keep the plastic cup as they would be to like save a soda can. It's garbage. Yeah. It's the thing their drink comes in, but they don't need it in their life. So with all their other trash, they leave it under the seats, and then someone like me comes along, crawls on my hands and knees, puts them in a plastic bag, takes them home, puts them through the dishwasher, and now I have like forty. Cups from the revival of La Caja Folles. What do I need with 40 right. La Caja Folles cups? I don't know, but I didn't want them to go in a landfill. And right. so another thing that I did just for the fun of it was years ago, probably three three or four years ago, I created a Facebook group called Broadway Sippy Cup Collectors. Because I thought, if I have 40 La Caja Folles cups, somebody else has 40, you know, Chicago cups. And if right. we can find 40 people who each have 40 cups from one show, then we can all trade. And then we'll each have a collection of a bunch of shows, and uh, yes. now that group has three thousand members. And um, and when shows start up again, I expect that we're all going to be on our hands and knees picking up cups and sending them to each other. And you know, and Susan noticed that, and she said, "You're doing a really major thing for the environment. Those cups, even if they are recyclable, the amount of energy it takes to recycle them is is huge, and it's the most literal example I've ever heard of." Uh, or, you know, that of one person's trash being another person's literal treasure. And to be the conduit, to be the person who says, I'm going to pick up this trash. And without without changing it at all, I didn't have to, there was no like upcycling. It was just a rescue and rehome mission. And so Susan was like, you've got a business there. I know you like trading them and I know you like giving them away to spread joy but you could theoretically like make some money on this and save the world and make people joyful. And I kind of was like, Oh, I don't know. Like, I don't want to sell them. I don't want to, I just want to make people happy. And she said, just keep it in the back of your mind. There may come a day. Um, like register some domain names. Like we registered broadwayfanmarketplace.com and a couple <laughs> of other things. Um, and sat on them. You know, you buy a domain name for five years, you sit on it, and you do nothing with it most of the time, and that's that. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is
0: your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky.
2: Play for
1: free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Just go to ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply.
1: So that was, that was a seed I planted that I never expected to grow into anything. But when I started selling stuff on eBay during the pandemic, I thought, well, I might as well take my eBay page. I changed the name of my eBay page. Instead of just being something I thought of when I was 20, I changed it to (sighs) applause shop and I couldn't believe it was available. And that was because I, because I, I searched, I, I always liked the name and I, and it turns out applause shop.com was available and it wasn't expensive. I think I paid like a hundred bucks for five years. And, uh, and so I changed my eBay name to applause shop. I registered social media accounts for applause shop and I, forwarded Broadway fan marketplace to a blog shop.com. And, um, and, and I I started talking to Susan on a regular basis and being like, I think this is the time and being a producer, not what, when I was a producer in radio, what that meant was like making the schedule for the show every day, making sure the guests were booked. Unlike a Broadway producer, who's like a fundraiser. And Mm. so Susan was like, I would like to partner with you in this company and it was like my stuff and my time and I need to be frank her money and we got me an office we we registered for an llc we hired a bookkeeper um we figured out what my you know my for lack of a better word like my salary would be for actually doing the stuff we hired me an assistant and we also the big change, like the big moment was um, through a friend of a friend, I was connected with the widow of an incredibly accomplished lighting designer who passed away in 2020. His name's oh. Howell Binkley. Oh. And he did In the Heights and Avenue Q and Jersey Boys and Hamilton and Kiss of the Spider Woman with Cheetah Rivera. And, um, you know, just uh, and, and he did a lot of really... Uh, well-known off-Broadway and out of town things too he did come from away in every incarnation he did um hunchback of notre dame which didn't go to broadway but you know has had a, a real a great international life and um his he was a collector um if he'd had, had a smaller apartment he might have also been considered a hoarder although the last thing i want to do is like besmirch <laughs> his besmirch his name cuz he's amazing but he saved every right. thi- single thing from every single production he ever did he did 52 broadway shows in his career 52 just on broadway and he had oh. every keychain he had every cast jacket he had every um like he had an entire box full of correspondence with Hal prince because oh my god he and Hal prince worked on a million things together he had like Every opening night playbill, he had every ticket stub. He had an entire basement full of collectibles from the shows he'd worked on. And his widow just didn't, it wasn't her industry. She had a lot of things of his to remember him by, but she didn't need, you know, like uh, opening night beach towel from Escape to Margaritaville to feel her you know her husband's presence with her so we I was connected to her through a friend and um and I ended up purchasing his entire collection from the from his estate essentially from his widow and that gave uh, Susan and me as a applause shop something to press release we were like for the mm. first time the Howell Binkley collection is going to be available for auction And that put us on the map a little bit. It gave us a moment to be like, okay, now we're going from Laura's hobby to a brand new business. And that was right around the beginning of, well, the official start date of our business was January 1st, 2021. Wow! So we're only six months in, but we've already donated thousands of dollars to charity. I'm managing to keep my bills paid. I'm renting office space um, from Daryl Roth at the Daryl Roth theater in um, Union Square. So I'm, I'm working out of a, a, a working theater. Um, so I'm surrounded by theater people. I'm still having the most incredible experiences with generous people who don't need all the clutter anymore. All of the stuff that they've either moved on from or have outgrown, or they've kept it in storage, and they realize that they really want somebody to just enjoy it instead of keeping it in the closet, you know. And and so people are giving me mm-hmm. things and saying please just find it a good home and um and we're also able to create these incredible time timely uh we call them events like in honor of the in the Heights movie release yes because Howell Binkley was the lighting designer on In the Heights and I have a long relationship with In the Heights I saw it off Broadway I uh I've interviewed Lin-Manuel Miranda several times I was the moderator for the 10 year anniversary uh, reunion event for the original Broadway cast. And um, just as somebody who saw the show multiple times on Broadway, I had a lot of souvenirs and merch. And so Susan and I decided to um, have a a sale of rare in the Heights memorabilia to coincide with the launch of the movie, because obviously you want eyeballs. And when something's in the (laughs) national conversation, that's a good time to get eyeballs and you know new fans who are like, "Oh my gosh, I need to have a playbill from the original production. And so we put together a sale that we call uh, Heights Stravaganza, uh, great hashtag. Um, and we, we uh, put together ten, uh, 12 different lots of in the heights related rare items, including uh, opening night gifts, um, uh, rare playbills, signed items from Lynn, um, wow. and the most incredible piece is is the actual best musical sign that hung on the marquee outside the theater. It says best musical no that went way. up the day after the Tony's and it's signed by Lynn and the cast. And this <gasps> is something that I, I bought the sign at the Broadway flea market, and then, and it was, it didn't have any signatures on it, but it said best musical. And, and I knew it was from In the Heights. It doesn't say In the Heights, it just says best musical, but it's the font. And I actually, the person I got it from that, that, that donated flea market was a member of the In the Heights uh, production team. So I knew it was legit. And then, and it, it, you know, it, it sat leaning against a wall in my apartment. And then I got hired to moderate the In the Heights reunion event. And so I lugged that giant sign to the venue where we did the reunion event, and I asked everybody to sign it for me, and they were delighted to. And you know where it's been since then? Oh. It's been under my bed. My apartment's tiny.
2: Oh, my God.
1: And I thought, what? I mean, this is a treasure. And yes, I spent my own money buying the sign, and everybody signed it for me. It doesn't say to Laura, but they signed it for me. And it's been in the dark, in the dust, mm-hmm. under my bed all this time. And I thought, it's time to use this for something good, to find someone who will adore it, who will display it, who will, you know, put some money in the pockets of an organization. And we partnered for Heights Stravaganza. We partnered with a Washington Heights nonprofit that serves first generation and immigrant families in Washington Heights. Like, wow. it could not be more relevant. They're called Fresh Use fresh youth initiatives. And um, I'm so incredibly proud of this height extravaganza. And uh, it feels like this event as a microcosm and applause shop as a whole feels like the perfect um, next evolution of what Broadway Girl has always been about which is being the me being right. the intersection between the industry and the fandom and the conduit that allows them to meet and create joy in the process.
2: Uh. I love that so much. You're you're incredible. Literally, oh, you literally. I I was actually on your shop today, just checking it out, and like literally, I caught myself on there for a good hour, just like really? scrolling through. I just got lost in all of the memorabilia that was on it. It was it, it was insane. How long is the Heights Extravaganza lasting?
1: Uh, we started it on June eleventh, uh-huh. and sales will, uh, the auctions will complete bidding on. Uh, June 21st.
2: Oh, perfect. June
1: 21st at noon, the first auction ends, and then they'll end every five minutes from noon to one on June 21st. And that's when the action's going to happen, and that's when bids need to be in by. When you clean out your closet, if you're finding memorabilia that you don't need, or like oh, t-shirts that don't fit you anymore from the shows you've been in, don't you know worry. What to do I'm, with
2: them. I already have a whole list to talk to you about when we when we finish <laughs> this thing offline. Oh my god, I have I have a ton of cups for sure. Um, as far as shirts and everything, I'm sure they're <gasps> somewhere, um, and I have a ton of playbills as well that I want to donate. Um, so. I definitely have those for you, but um, as far as shirts and stuff, I'll, I'll look for those for sure. But I do want to talk about this wonderful social media post that you had the other a couple days ago as well, and you talked about how proud you were to be a queer business owner, and I would love to hear you elaborate on the importance of this and any advice to people listening who who want to create like a small business or a business in general.
1: You know what, Eli? You're the first person that I've uh, ever been interviewed by who's asked me about that, and one of the reasons is that I have not been very vocal about being queer for a long time. Really? Um, I am, I I present very like, yeah, I mean, I, because I am not lesbian, I'm not gay, I'm not trans, I am queer. I date a lot of men or I have, not a lot of men, but like I have dated mostly men in my life. I have also dated women and I have all, and I feel like my version of queer is I my version of loving has just never felt like what other people's way of seeing the world in a sexual and romantic way is and I can't always explain that. Um I don't I don't even really identify as bisexual because even that feels mm-hmm. too limiting. I'm just kind of like I don't know what to expect from my own attractions and my own romantic interests and I But I know it doesn't fit with the way the rest of the world seems to work. I didn't for a long time, I didn't feel like that was enough to put myself out there as a member of this community that has been, you know, of people who have really been um, disenfranchised and discriminated against. And because I will, you know, when I'm dating somebody, I'm usually walking down the street holding hands with a dude. And so I've never been discriminated against for my orientation. And that made me feel like I hadn't earned the ability to call myself queer from a political standpoint. So I just kind of haven't. And in the last year or so, especially during the pandemic, but even before I, I had been thinking about, you know, queer isn't about who you date. It's about who you are. And I don't think people need to have receipts to, to say, Oh well, I dated a girl in college, so wow. I get to call myself that. Like I, I realize that I, I don't need any receipts. I just need to know who I am in my heart.
2: Um, Absolutely,
1: and that I, and that because that is who I am in my core. That there's that I should be talking about it, mm-hmm. and then that's a different kind of visibility. To be like, you know, there are there are people who are who we see, I think we, we see a lot more representation now of any people on the spectrum than we used to. And often they are very clearly identifiable as like men who date men, women who date women, um, you know, people whose gender identity doesn't match their sex assigned at birth. I don't think mm-hmm. we talk a lot about asexuality. I don't think we talk a lot about um, questioning. I don't think we talk even much about bisexuality. And if we do, it's often really misunderstood. And right. I'm really excited about it. Like, I'm in my, I'm in my forties now, my early, early forties, but I'm in my forties. And I'm like, I, I want to, I, I'm feeling really proud of who I am as a complicated not easy to put in a box human being like really truly feeling proud of it for maybe the first time in my life I mean Mm. I I came out as something other than just liking boys when I was 16 but Mm -hmm. then I and I dated some girls and then I dated a whole bunch of boys and I was like I guess I don't I guess I don't know, straight just feels easiest. And now I'm right. like, I'm proud of it. And I want to put the hashtag on everything. And I want to push with the I wanna be like it, to me, it's kind of an anti-label. It is right. it is a label, but it's like I don't fit any of your stuff. So yeah. So don't expect me to fit any of your stuff. And if you look at me and you see someone who looks like they fit a traditional like lifestyle or whatever, just don't assume you know that about me because that, that's not me. That did not answer your question about advice for business owners, but but I am really excited to actually be asked about a queer identity because I have not really ever talked about it. I'm, you might say, I might say I'm proud that you asked me that and I'm proud to be able to talk about it.
2: Yes. Oh my God. Of course. Literally that's what this month is about. First of all, Pride Month, Uh, June is so special. Um, And of course, like just, I don't know, it, it, you're like you said it's not something that's talked about enough and if it is talked about it's talked about in a way that it's not meant to be talked about. So especially in in with a community such as Broadway and how um just in, uh how much of an impact Broadway has on the on the community itself. Um I try to talk about it on here as much as possible because those are the people who's actually going to educate you in the right ways. Uh, you know what I mean? So of course, anytime, literally mm-hmm. you can talk about it for a whole nother hour. I don't care up to you, but thank you for sharing your story and sharing <laughs> who you are.
1: Well, I will say this. I, I just appreciate you giving me the chance to, I do want to, uh, to take the opportunity also to more specifically answer your question, which is about being a business owner. Um, I don't think it's specific to being a queer business owner. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll say that the key to the, you know, my, I have always felt very uh, dedicated to the idea of just being my authentic, true self, even if it's complicated and even if it feels contradictory. And I think that the reason that I have been successful as a radio host, as a social media personality, um, even as an actor is the ability to just go into a room and be like, this is who I am, like it or not. If I'm not right for your project, or if you don't feel like following me on As social, you, if you don't want to listen to my show. Th- that's fine. I'm not for everybody, but I'm not for everybody. But, but, if you do choose me, then then that's great. And if you if I'm not for you, that's also great. Um, and so I think that that does really apply to queer people. And it should apply to everybody. But queerness is something that I think people grapple with more than a lot of other ways to sort of just be themselves in the room. Um, and whether it's, you know, somebody who feels like they need to straighten their hair before they go into an audition room, or somebody who feels like they need to put, you know, uh, put on a You know, body shaper, or whether it's somebody who feels like they need to put heels on, or whether it's somebody who Mm. needs to like not like disguise an accent or whatever it is, we all have things about ourselves that we wonder if they're going to interfere with our ability to connect with an audience, with uh, you know, with a casting director, with a customer, and I think that the way to build to build a dedicated. Uh, authentic following customer base community is really the ultimate word is to say, it's totally okay. If I'm not for you, if you are for me, we're going to be together forever, (laughs) you know? Um, And, uh, and I think diving in and doing something that you love just because it's fun for you, like it doesn't have to be a business in a traditional sense to make money doing something you love. And I, th- I see a lot of people who, who have an idea and they're like, I'm going to, I'm going to incorporate, I'm going to be an LLC. I'm going to like, I need to get verified. I need to, to uh, you know, figure, figure out all of the they kind of put the cart before the horse to use a, you know, an old term. Um, if you, if you, love doing something, like do it because you love doing it, not because you think you're going to get paid for it. Um, right. You know, I don't know anybody. Who, I know a lot of people who love to read and I don't know a single person who's like, okay, I love to read. Now I got to figure out how to get paid for it. They spend their time reading because that's fun for them. It doesn't feel like lost time. It doesn't feel like they're wasting their time because the entertainment value is enough. And everything right. that I have achieved in my career has been, I've like surprised myself by looking back retroactively and going, oh, I was actually getting work experience. I thought I was just playing. And so I would say it's better, it's better to have a job that pays the bills and a really, really exciting hobby. And don't worry about getting paid for the stuff that you love. Just, yes, you have to figure out a way to make money, but also make time for the thing that you would do even if you didn't make money. And that way, maybe right. someday you'll start making money for the thing that you do for fun. But if you don't, it still won't be a loss because you got the entertainment value out of it. You, you had fun doing it at the same time. So those are sort of two pieces of business-related advice. I started, I I I identified my, I could tell I was, entrepreneurial from a very young age but i didn't actually become an entrepreneur until january 1st of 2021 when i was almost 42 years old
2: Yeah, because that's
1: when i that's when i actually got uh, like went through the process to have an llc you don't have to be a business person to
2: get paid for doing what you love wait for the right moment i mean I mean, th- I mean, you can't get better than that. I mean, <laughs> that is pretty. That is a pretty great message to end on for today. I've taken up enough of your time. Um, th- this was incredible. Literally, you are an inspiration. <laughs> you, you just like the way that you are able to carry Aww. yourself. The way that you're able to just like you've said, like I don't know, you always like make everything work, and like it's cool to see someone who practices what they preach to. And I feel like you are a perfect example of that. Um, And uh, just everything, like, I I don't know, I'm just blown away by today and just talking to you. uh, I could have done it all day. But thank you for doing this. And thank you for Giving such great advice and talking and uh, using your platform for good.
1: Thank you, Eli. Like I've been a fan oh of God. yours since I first, since I first saw you perform. I think we met because we were both collectors of lights of Broadway show cards. Yes. Um, and I got to give you my card, my lights of Broadway show yes. card. Yes. And again, like you were a little boy, and oh now, and now you're all grown up, and I feel like a proud mama, and <laughs> I am so impressed by you. I love that you're doing this podcast because again, like you, you have been doing since you were a child, you've been doing something that people dream of doing their whole lives. And I think sometimes when, when dreams, when like lifelong dreams come true before you hit puberty, it can be real tough to figure out where you go next and doing this podcast is such an incredible beautiful example of evolution of being like i'm not i'm not going to peak when i'm 12 i'm going to figure out other things to do and develop other skills and you know continue to dream dreams and not be like well i crossed broadway off my list guess i'm done you are you're setting really incredible examples too of how to walk the walk and how to you know to to, to to be the ultimate example of what you profess to be so I'm really proud of you and I'm really inspired by you as well
2: oh my god you're gonna make me cry thank you that means so much and and I do say like we definitely met from the lights of Broadway card but also another fun like literally maybe my favorite memory was when you also somehow got on the Finding Neverland baseball team that like the softball league or whatever that the theaters do and everything. Oh yeah. Yeah, And and I loved it. You were like, I'll play catcher. and Like it was just like the way that I don't know that whole league is, is just so much fun. So silly. And it's just a great way to bring everyone together. And that was definitely like the time where we like, that's actually, got hilarious. Cursed. Yeah.
1: Okay, so I'm that the reason I got on that team was because the manager of the team, who was the stage manager at Finding Neverland, there were not enough women who wanted to play. Even right. though Finding Neverland and Fiddler on the Roof combined to create a team. <laughs> not find two women to be on the team, right. and right. every every Broadway show league team needs two women, and so they made some exception for me to be on the team. And because when I worked in sports talk. I, one of my many jobs at that radio station was producing pre and post game broadcasts at the San Francisco Giants baseball games. And oh the Giants went god. to the World Series, went to game seven of the World Series that season. So I'm a huge baseball fan and obviously a huge Broadway fan. <laughs> and I used to go and watch Broadway show league games from the bleachers just as a fangirl. It was a, a, oh my god, an honor of my life to play on that team. So um yeah, I still That's have my jersey. amazing. I will never get rid of it. Yes, it's like finding fiddlers. Finding
2: fiddler. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, when my I get God. back
1: to New York, now that now that the world's opening up again, let's just go let's just go grab a couple of mitts and throw a ball around in Central Park when I'm Absolutely.
2: Listen, if you're still gonna be that fan who like goes and watches those games in Central Park, count me in. Let me know. I'll come. <laughs> Uh, Laura, thank you so much. You're a dream. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for giving us your time. And thank you for giving us all your wisdom and inspiration for so many to to just hear and be inspired by.
1: Thanks, Eli.
2: Take a bow, Laura Hayward. So uh, first of all, there was so many incredible things that she was able to talk about. Just the fact that, you know, she had no intentions, like, so she got into theater right and then she got out of it and the universe just brought her back into it immediately not immediately but so like really quickly and everything that she had to say about her time when she did step out of broadway she was working her butt off and doing everything that she could to be seen everything that she could to continue to get better and i think that's just such an important lesson for literally everyone uh, to learn by, no matter what field or industry that you're in, because you can only you can only get better. You can always get better. Nobody's ever going to be perfect, and that's okay. But we can continue to work hard, and we can continue to work to get better. Um, and all of those things are completely okay. So everything that she had to say, and just her journey throughout all of this, and what she's kind of overcome, and she talking about being a queer business owner. Uh, was just incredible. She was so excited to finally talk out about it. It was her first time doing it publicly that wasn't on social media. So basically like live publicly um, and all and all of that. So it was incredible to hear from her and get some inspiration from her. I hope that you all learned and are inspired once again by her. And uh, she had some amazing things to say. So I was very happy that we could have her on during this wonderful Pride Month that we're celebrating as she just recently like publicly came out on social media that she was queer. Um, So very exciting for her. Congratulations, Laura, on all your success on coming out and everything like that. Uh, Go check out the Applause Shop. That's super important. Their auctions are going to be coming out, are going to be ending on Sunday. So Check it out if you want to buy anything, but also check out those auctions because they're going to be amazing. And I can't wait because I will be watching all of those auctions as well and hopefully getting some really cool items. I was bummed. So we talked for so long. And I was bummed because I wanted to pick her brain about like Broadway shows and everything like that. I wanted to ask like what her favorite were, like I want to ask what her favorite cast albums and everything. And of course, I wanted to talk about In the Heights. We're going to talk about In the Heights soon with someone, I promise, for those of you who do want to hear that chatter. And of course, that also gives everyone a longer amount of time to see In the Heights if you haven't seen it yet so that you'll understand everything that uh, we're kind of talking about because it may be a little different from... the musical of course not the story but like what we talk about um so check it out if you haven't in the heights so good um and uh yeah so many great things happening laura you are an amazing guest so thank you for your time and coming out here to, to talk about your store your identity everything just it was incredible it was a great show and a wonderful interview and i'm very lucky to have you on it was great timing um, and yeah just like radio to Broadway like I love it it's just such a unique story and now she's friends with all of these people that she was fans of so I just think her story and what she's created is just so cool she's literally like Bill Berloni I'm I'll say it again like be yourself and capitalize on it and she was that you know she went to a Broadway show and she tweeted what she was thinking and she said oh here I am I'm here And I'm sitting here and it's a great seat. Like it's as simple as that. And she's been able to make this hugely successful and wonderful career on it. And, um, has been able to meet so many amazing people along the way and be, and and say that you're part of an industry that you've always loved and you've always dreamed of being in. So there's just so many things that you can do in this world, um, that, uh, that it's so true that you're going to be able to be yourself and you're going to be able to be successful when you really hone in on yourself and your craft. Um, I didn't do this, a drama dictionary this week in the intro and outro. So I'm going to do it now and I'm going to skip the triple E segment this week as it is more for, um, it is more about our guests this month. So Let's talk about uh, the Drama Dictionary Word of the Week this week. So this week's Drama Dictionary Word of the Week is actually going to be kind of a story. um, And it's going to be about the Scottish play. And um, for those of you who don't know, I can say it right now because I'm only in my house. But in a theater, you are not allowed to say Macbeth because there's... There's a very long history of things that went wrong during that show and when that was in theaters, and it's and it's sought out to uh, think that it's going to bring you bad luck and it's going to something's going to go wrong or something's going to happen. The superstition that you have to do when you say Macbeth at a theater. You immediately spin around a circle three times on the spot, wherever you are, and then you spit over your shoulder and say, obscenity. Then you have to leave the theater with a friend or whoever you said it to, and then you have to walk around the theater three times and spit over your left shoulder before entering. It's so bizarre, but now you know if you ever if it ever slips in a theater, if you say Macbeth, that's what you got to do. Uh, Please refer to, please uh, try not to say it. Try to avoid saying Macbeth because I made the mistake of doing it one time in Pippin in literally like my first show and um, was just absolutely like everyone was like, (gasps) and like I was scared to death. So don't be like Eli (laughs) and say Macbeth in a theater. Uh, Instead, do just, just now, you know. Now you know not to, and now you know if you do, you have to do this. And uh, then your break a leg moment will be restored. So that's it for this week's episode of Take a Bow. I hope you all enjoyed it, uh, and I look forward to seeing you all next week. Bye, everyone. For this episode's Curtain Call, I would like to recognize a few people who also deserve to take a bow. This podcast would not be possible without the help from Dory Berenstein, Brittany Bigelow, Katie Rosen, Alan Seals, and the team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Next in line to take a bow is Tessie Tokash, who edits the audio and all the visuals for this podcast. A special thanks to patrons Brian Thompson, Pat McNamara, the listeners at PCC, as well as all of the other patrons for their continued support if you're interested in becoming a patron go to patreon.com tab and if you enjoyed this week's episode don't forget to subscribe on the platform that you're currently listening to this on also feel free to give us a follow on instagram at take about podcast take logo is designed by giselle bustos and the music is by nikki torsha and cormac Collinon. bye everyone hope to see you next week